This episode is sponsored by United Refrigeration and Westermeyer Industries, revolutionizing your HVACR experience. Visit URI.com for all your HVACR needs, offering real-time inventory, personalized pricing, and a nearby stock feature. Access quick-pick replacement parts and branch details effortlessly. With 350-plus fully stocked locations across North America, our knowledgeable staff are ready to assist with the solutions you need. Exclusive offer. Use code ARPOD on URI.com to get a $10 gift card when purchasing the Westermeyer oil float, part number W4300-38F. These high-performance floats are not just compatible with their own oil separators, but also available as a crossover model conveniently stocked at United Refrigeration. That's code A-R-P-O-D to claim your $10 gift card. Visit URI.com now. The Sporland Division of Parker Hannifin Corporation is sponsoring this podcast. Sporland is the leading manufacturer of HVAC and R components. Using quality materials and craftsmanship, Sporland maintains a commitment to innovation, manufacturing excellence, service, and support for its customers since 1934. The company is known for its catch-all filter dryers, thermostatic expansion valves, solenoid valves, pressure regulating valves, suction filters, electric valves, controllers, supermarket monitoring solutions, chemicals, smart service tools, ZoomLock Max Press to Connect, and ZoomLock Push, Push to Connect refrigerant fittings. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to Sporland.com. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. Yeah, I know. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> Good morning. Yeah, man, it is morning. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. Here are those Brett Wetzel and Kev Compass. How, how was last week? And I say that, how was last week? Last week was rough. It was uh, a never-ending show, but uh, I'm used to that by now. But yeah. last week was the first. Uh, OSHA showed up to the job site twice, two days in a row, which sucks. And I don't know if anybody's ever had OSHA show up on a job site, but when they do, you never see more grown men scattered like cockroaches. <laughs> I was trying, when you told me that, I spent 20 minutes looking for a video because i knew there's one out there where you can see people and then they just scatter and <laughs> i was looking for a video for a meme and i couldn't freaking find one to save my life yeah he, he when you see that nerdy guy show up with the uh, clean shoes and a clipboard and safety glasses and a clean hard hat and a vest just start running everybody i turned around and everybody was gone there there had to be 90 guys on the sales floor working between carpenters electricians uh fitters and everybody else and just gone i got a call and say, hey get out of the compressor room we're going to break osha's here it's just find all your safety stuff and just get out of the building and they're up there just just looking for violations and w- which sucks because it's a construction job and they're everywhere it should be safe though it should be safe but you can't really do your job if you follow every single osha thing you're never gonna get the job done you never oh. and like, that's the thing like I, i've you've had cords laid out where they're supposed to and then all of a sudden someone comes through with a forklift while you are doing x 
and now you come back and now that extension cord is all junked like up just, there's, there's a cord on the floor technically that's an osha violation hmm. and they, they, it, it, it's finicky with stuff it's it, it's a nightmare and we're trying to get all the stuff going and it just ruined an entire day's worth of work and then the guy came back two days later again to look for more stuff and it's just oh this is we're never going to get anything done and then the time he came it was at like noon so then nobody came back to work everyone just left for the day yeah we were working 12s but like everybody at that point's like yep screw it just going back to the hotel everybody went back to the bar it just really screws up everything. The fitters are the only ones that came back to work because we had to get everything piped, but it just really screws up the entire day. So on top of dealing with that, I'm doing a CO2 startup and I'm out here doing like the pre-start. So mm -hmm. I'm going through everything and it's just been non-stop issues. It's like stuff, some stuff got piped the wrong stuff, which that happens on every single job. But then there's, we're doing EMS and it's just, that's a mess. And there's just tons of stuff that like is not clear in the prints. So I'm out here going through this 900 page wiring diagram for the rack. So that's the only thing you can find the field pipe field, the field wiring on. There's no one line diagram for these electricians. So there's none of that. So I'm over here just trying to make a list of things that need to get pulled and stuff that needs to get landed, which is extremely difficult because the prints don't have any of it on there. Wait, even with the field piping, like the sensor wiring, the comm cables, all that other stuff, not yes, labeled? Like there, there's a generalized comm drawing, which doesn't match the store. And then there's no, for all the field wiring, like for the gas coolers, for example, it shows a comm line going up there mm -hmm. from the rack. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need it. It needs uh, four 22-2s and two 18-4s. What are they doing up there? Do you need it? Uh, so Eddie. yeah so there's temp sensors there they got your rack temps or your drop leg temp sensors your outside air temp sensor your speed reference your adiabatic what when, when the, for to tell you when it's an adiabatic when there's a fault on a fan and stuff like that but like none of that's on the prints it's in the drawings on the rack legends but to go through these i know where to look for this stuff but like 99% of other guys don't know where to look for it because the book is literally 900 pages long. So yeah, well, whatever is on your job, right? That That's one of my biggest arguments when trying to argue change orders. If someone, if I see a set of prints that I have, obviously the guy that did the job went over those prints. So if there was something that was on, let's just say the electrician's drawing that says, oh, controlled by energy management contractor, you know what I mean? And if it's not on there, guess what? They screwed up. I need a change order because the guy's not going to magically assume that, oh, they're probably going to forget a couple things. So let's just add, pad the bill because we're trying to get the job. No, that's not the way it works. You go off the actual print. So when that stuff's on the electrician stuff, but not on yours, that's once again, call, calls for a change order in my eyes. Oh, hundred percent. But that's the thing. It, and it's only a problem with this one manufacturer. Like they're the ones that make it way more difficult than it needs to be. Like they should be including a one line drawing with their racks that like, here's your field connection wires. Here's one through 35 wires need to get ran from the rack to whatever field device they go to. That, that it's insane that that does not exist. And that you have to go through this book that you don't have when you bid the project in order to figure all this stuff out. Wait, what book? 
that that book with all the wiring diagrams in it. Oh, okay. Gotcha. You know what I'm talking about? The that giant book with all the the one the wiring diagrams in them. In oh, the, oh, in yeah, the PID yeah. diagrams and or P and D diagrams. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, who usually gets that for you? It comes with the racks. No, I know, but even if I don't rely on that because <laughs> I don't trust them. I just usually get them from the project manager or something and just have him ship me over the stuff. If I'm like flying out to diagnose something or I mean, the manufacturer will email to you, but they're real hesitant to do it. But it's, I usually put it on the, the microthermal computers too. Like I, I'll usually upload the Adobe files on mm-hmm. the computer because that makes it a lot easier to like troubleshoot the, the wiring diagrams. But that's uh, neither here nor there. But yeah, that's what I've been dealing with all week. So they got an entire week upcoming they have four days to finish this vacuums get the racks ready and then we're starting the racks on the january 2nd so should be interesting see how it goes we did a lot of pre-work this week so i'm hoping that's going to pay off and we're going to be ahead of the game but it never seems to be the case i've been on vacation i haven't done so sorry i got nothing yeah it was off. i've been off i had I realized I had a whole bunch of vacation that I just, cause I never take off work and I realized there was just a lot of vacation time. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to take off from, uh, I don't think I work since last Friday till I'm supposed to be off to the second. And uh, yeah, like that Friday I got home, I ended up starting to get sick. So there went a week of me actually getting anything done. So what are, what are we talking about t- today? I think you wanted to do, normal rack startups like hfc rack startups yeah there's still a bunch of them out there they're still out and about i think it's important that we still cover that because there's a lot of the older gents that used to do all the startups are retiring and a lot of of the younger guys want to learn how to do startup and they just they don't i don't know they just don't know it's hard right because it takes you how long did it take you to get like a groove where you felt that you were actually being 100% 100% productive and obviously not 100% but as, as productive as what you could about a year or two but I do everything in like processes like I have like processes built in my head like of how I do everything like mm-hmm. how I approach like every situation how I approach every startup I have built processes in my head to make me more efficient and make me faster and make me more confident and confident with it all right let's start about that or let's talk about that then I don't know. Let's, let's do regular. You don't have a ton of HFC racks and like a ton of them. We're, we're still starting more of those in CO2 racks. It's been hit or miss. It seems like a lot of customers are still, you know, playing the couple here, couple there game, but we're still starting a lot of HFC racks. And the way I like to go about doing all of this is I have built processes in my head and I never really wrote them down on paper, but I you know, will teach guys as I'm doing it, as I'm training like other startup guys, which is I'm starting to more and more here as of lately. But so the way I like to go about this is so when it comes time for startup, I like to be involved in the project as things are going on. As it's getting built, I want the foreman to call me with questions. I want to know issues they're having, what what if things are getting brought up on prints that don't seem right. I want to be involved in all that because I want to you know know about this from the beginning. 
And if things are like questionable, I'd rather know about it. If I can answer the question or figure out this is a spec issue, it's okay. Yeah, that's a mistake. That doesn't look right. Let's get an RFI to the engineer to see if they messed up. Like we had one the other day and it showed the drop leg piping on the split side to be an entire pipe size smaller. What? Same with the discharge. Like the, the full side, the, the side that ran all year was inch and five discharge drop leg the other side was inch and an eighth that makes no sense whatsoever never seen it before but it was called in the prints like that in every rack so ended up being a mistake obviously oh jesus but if nobody would have said anything it would have all gotten piped in like that yeah you would have had more flow to the inch and five line than the other side so you wouldn't have full in in everybody's defense it would have garnered a change order because it was wrong it was the engineer's mistake but nobody wants to do this during construction or startup like yeah we would have got a change order we got paid for it but it's not worth the time and headache that it would have caused to to fix it all it's just not worth it it got caught right away and we ended up getting a change order for the pipe to run the bigger pipe so we ended up making more money off it anyway but a little bit here and there but at the end of the day it saved us a ton of time redoing it in the end how about rack stuff? You know, 99% of the time you get the PNID diagram so you can actually follow the piping to make sure it actually m- makes sense on the print, but also makes sense with what they're doing. Because sometimes, like I- I've heard of, I had someone said there was a hot gas line that got installed before the BGV rather than after. So that we're not talking about CO2 here. No, I'm okay. Sorry. I just use that for example, for just basically piping messes up. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, you're right. You're a hundred percent right. <laughs> you, you broke that rule real quick. I did. I did. All right. Cause I don't have anything off the uh, top of my head right now. You're a jerk. Continue. Yeah. I'll look at the racks. I generally don't look at the P and I D diagrams until I'm there to first start up. I will generally look at the racks after they get everything piped or they're getting near i want to come to the job and just see how everything is i'll spend a couple hours there answering questions making sure that stuff's there ready and i'll walk a job just get myself familiarized with it now when i come to do startup i'll spend a couple hours with the foreman walk the job look over the hangers, look over everything in the store look over what i'm doing and then go up in the rack look over the rack, trace out the piping. I'll, I'll briefly look at the PNID diagram, but I'll trace out the piping. I'm looking through all the headers and fit, finding my packed angle valves and my transducers and my temp sensors. And I'm just looking over everything, making you know mental notes of where everything is. And then when it comes time to doing the pressure test, like I let the foreman do the pressure test and I will generally try to get the EMS up and running for the pressure test. So I could have all the transistors on so we could watch it. That way it's a lot easier. We're not playing. Is it leaking through this gauge? Is this gauge off? Anything like that. I will generally watch it like that. And then I will generally split up the circuits. So I'll valve off all the circuits while they're pressurized. So that way we pressurize them at 175 pounds, say that 
then they're all sitting with 175 in there. So if we do drop on the rack, we know it's just the rack. Or if we do drop on the condenser, it's just the condenser. If we drop on a circuit, it's just that circuit. It's, it's a lot easier to, you know, find a leak that way, cuts down on time, than wasting and pressurizing and waiting and pressurizing and waiting. It's just a lot quicker to to, to split the rack up and do it that way. Yeah, now you've actually just having an SOP, like trying to figure out the easiest way. So you're, like you said, so you're not chasing your ass. It just leaked 50 pounds off from last night, but where'd it go? So now by shutting off all your ball valves and segregating everything from the the condenser, once you get that common pressure in there, one, you can check all the pressure transducers. And then two, just make sure, like you said, it's not this certain section of the rack that's leaking. Yeah. And then my guys have been pretty good about here when they're done piping a circuit, pressurizing it and shutting it and then marking it down. So that way it's full of pressure when they finish. And then that way that one's pressure tested. So smart. They, they can pressure test the whole rack all together. If they know all the circuits are good, they could open that up. They don't got to worry about it. If they know the condenser's good and it's been pressurized and all that's good, then then when they do the, the, the full standing pressure test, it's just the rack at that point. But generally most of the racks have been coming in flat. I haven't had a rack in a long time pressure. <laughs> the last it startup we did like i must i think between four racks we had 37 leaks damn and hey, you, what no i was gonna say do you ever pull every everything apart i know sometimes you might get a compressor that might have something in it plug something on the rack or you just you're not pulling everything apart correct the last story to rip all the insulation off the header because they missed six joints on the suction header on where the stubs went in. They burned like three quarters of the joints on the suction ball valves. So that was a treat. But no, we're usually not having to rip stuff apart unless there's an issue, but there was one of them. We had to end up pulling a stub out of, out of a header. They shoved it in all the way to, it was like a three and three and an eighth pipe. They went into a four-inch pipe. Oh, and they shoved it all the way down the bottom? All the way down to the bottom, and it was making such a pressure drop that I I ended up pulling out almost like four inches of pipe. Yeah, because when when you have a... And this one came in from the top? Yeah, it was was a header feeding another header. Oh, okay. It was a stuffed-in piece into a bigger header. Oh, almost like a remote header or whatever. Kind of. It was on the rack, but like they... It was a header feeding into another header, but they shoved the pipe in so far that it was making a huge pressure drop. So there, there's been, that was a nightmare. We had to end up heating it up with four different 40 tips and come along tied to a scissor lift to to pull it out because it was just so tight in there. Damn. I mean, it just took, it took a massive amount of heat to get it to even. Well, yeah. yeah, just to evenly get that around. Holy, okay. So... As we're going through that, I, I'm making a note so we do the pressure test. So that way it gets pressurized. I hope this is all done before I get there and the foreman's already had everything pressure tested and we're ready to go. If vacuums get pulled, it's a miracle. Here, here is a lately because with schedules and everything else, generally I've been doing the vacuums. I, I think it's a complete waste of time for the startup guy to be doing vacuums. It's... If you can get the construction guys to do it and everything's good, then yeah, you could be doing other things. But so if I'm starting vacuums, I'm very particular about how I do it. I want to get on all the packed angle valves. And then 
if I'm doing vacuums, I'll usually cut in more packed angle valves because here lately, a lot of racks have been coming with no packed angles on the suction, which I think is ridiculous. So I have a question then. So if you have an option, if you have a big welch pump and someone had brazed in four seven eighths ball valves, are you going to just put connectors on there to put pack angle valves to go to other parts? Or are you going to actually weld that rack into that pump? I'm not a big fan of welding into the pump because it's a lot of wasted labor. Like it's just, to me, it's just a lot of wasted labor. So, as long as, so you're saying as long as you have enough, if you actually had a header, like a, a header that you made up with a whole bunch of peg angles, I know that's what you got. And you could basically set that thing up and then connect up there. You have enough flow to pull that rack down rather quickly with your blue, your true blues or whatever. Oh, I don't even do that anymore. So once I moved companies, I, I didn't, I lost my giant, beautiful stainless vacuum header. But what I do now is we have a five-way cross that we bought for the vacuum pump. So it's just, it's the same fittings and everything. It's on those blue vac hoses, but it's a five-way cross. And what we do is we end up putting that on there and we could tie four hoses to it. So I'll generally see if guys can put in four half inch packed angle valves. And if they're three eighths, whatever, then they're three eighths packed angle valves. The end isn't necessarily just a killer, but the ha I rather have the half inch ones. They go faster. And then I get plenty of flow through those almost more than the, the, the pump could flow. Even that big pump, it's not flowing more than, than, than those four hoses are going to take. I'll generally hook those four hoses up, get one on the suction header, I'm a discharge on the receiver or the liquid line, wherever it is. And then generally on some field piping somewhere. No, it's, it's no, it's a KF fittings. You can't get them anywhere, but like eBay or Amazon, usually they're KF 16 fittings. So okay. I'll generally up. try to like get on there. I want to get where the volume is now. What I have been doing as of lately, because a lot of manufacturers are skimping out on the uh, packed angle valves, is I've been pulling a receiver relief and threading in a half-inch male pipe thread by half-inch male flare fitting. And I've been using that to pull on the receiver because I'm pulling right off the top of the receiver and I can get a ton of flow out of there because the receiver is the biggest part of the vet open vessel in the store besides the condenser in your field piping. So the faster you evacuate that, the better. Now, I am not a big proponent of uh, triple evacuation. I think it's like a giant waste of time. Obviously, got to follow customer specs, but triple evacuation is just a huge waste of time. It's just, it is. Like with modern vacuum pumps and efficient vacuum gauges and better vacuum gauges, it's just not needed. But you're better off pulling a deep, long vacuum. Yeah, that right there you're better off pulling a, a nice long vacuum. That's where your dehumidification and your dehydration happens in that system with heat. I'll, if I have a, a vacuum that's pulling slow and I think there's moisture in the rack, especially if it's electric defrost, I'll start firing off heaters. I'll get the crankcase heaters on. I'll start, you know, throwing cases and defrost and trying to get the heaters on the cases to warm up the, the evaporators. Don't leave them on, but you know, warm them up because that's what's going to cause that moisture to boil out of there. 
and that's what's going to make your vacuum go quicker. Heat is what makes the vacuum heat and the vacuum pump and the hoses are what make vacuums go faster. So then you're going to want to put your micron gauge at the farthest case. And then that's where you're going to want to do start your test, depending on what the store is like a decay test at two hours, I think to me is good enough. If you're not going above say 500 microns in two hours, I'm calling that good. Most stores it's 24 hours. That, that's where it gets more difficult. You need to make sure even the vacuum gauge is isolated because that even that rubber gasket on there is enough to make it fail the test if it's left on there and open. Mm. But while I'm doing the vacuums, I'm doing other stuff. So I'm generally going through and tightening all the electrical connections and checking all the electrical connections, checking all the wires. So are you doing your sensor checks at that point or are you doing that later? I do that later while I'm doing the vacuum, like the, as it's starting, I, I'm going through and I'm doing all the electrical connections. Like I'll get my torquing screwdriver out and I'll torque all the terminal blocks down. And then I'll go through and I'll check all the high voltage connections. I'll check all those, make sure that they're all tight. Look at them, make sure nothing's crisscrossed, go through all that, make sure everything's torqued down tight, pull the compressors, check the electrical in those, make sure nothing's touching because that's been a huge problem as of lately, like lugs touching each other. Really? Yeah. Seems crazy. And then I'll go through all the compressors and check them to ground. Make sure nothing's short and make sure no wires, strands are touching anywhere. Nothing's cut in the BX or the manufacturer nick something. So a lot of going through that. And then as I'm doing that, I'm generally getting the EMS up, checking transducers, checking temp sensors on the rack. I'm generally doing this by myself. I'll start, you know, go up there with my can of duster and start spraying sensors on the discharge line, make sure they're on the right compressors or suction line temp sensors, make sure they're all on the right compressors, make sure all of that's good to go. And then checking like temp sensors on an HFC rack, if it's case temp sensors, I'm if it's just discharge air sensors, I'm generally not verifying them. Yeah. So what I end up doing is I end up doing them while the rack's running. Like I could tell after a day or two, okay, yeah, these temp sensors are all in the right case. Like they're, they rise in temperature when it's in defrost, they fall in temperature when it's not. I'm generally not wasting the time to do that. I'll make sure I'll check one or two of them to make sure in each lineup to make sure they're in the right spot. Meaning like they're that that's T1, that's T2, that's T3, but I'm not, Going through and verifying a lot. If we have case controllers and we're controlling superheat, then absolutely I'm going through all the sensors and making sure they're in the right spot and all that stuff. But it's just not worth the time to go through because I could do it later on in the computer and I could do it more, way more efficiently. Today's episode is sponsored by the RefRush Shield RDP Series Differential Pressure Monitors from Westermeyer Industries, now available for transcritical CO2 systems in addition to other common pressures and refrigerants. When the filter element of your coalescing oil separator is contaminated, it can hurt your system's performance and efficiency. But how do you know when it's time to replace that filter? Wait too long to replace and you could end up with a nasty filter blowout. But replacing too often can be a waste of time and money. The answer is installing a differential pressure monitor. The RDP series differential pressure monitors, including the new transcritical CO2 model, are available now from Westermeyer Industries. To find out more information, email sales at westermeyerin.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R-I-N-D-C-O-M. 
Oh, so, oh, you're saying by shutting the, what shutting the circuits down and just making sure those are the ones that are actually going to rise? Yeah, it, throwing it through defrost. I'll graph it. That way I can check case temp one, two, and three against defrost. And okay, if I see it rise and I see, okay, yeah, temp three is when all the other temps are in, in their 40s in defrost. This one's at 32 degrees. I know that's probably not in that lineup and they switched the sensor somewhere. Then I start looking for the, the next circuit that's doing the same thing and then comparing them and okay, yeah, this wire and this wire flipped. I'll just move it on the I'll just move it on the board and then we're good to go. So that's generally what I'll do with that. Then after my decay test is good and I've gotten through all that, I will generally break the vacuum. So I'll grab with me, I usually just grab a hundred pounder and go ahead. When are you putting in, making sure that all your filter dryers are in? So I do that after I break the vacuum. So uh, break the vacuum with refrigerant. Okay. So this is where we're at the very minuscule amount of pressure, just enough in there just to get pressure in there. I usually put a hundred pound cylinder in. So you're not on set on, hey, if I get 25 pound, 25 PSI or whatever, what is that? I mean, as long as it's positive, I, I don't care. Like I'll generally, I will generally start putting a hundred pounder in at the receiver. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as it's positive pressure, I valve off the dryer shells and leave the bypass open and just let the hundred pounder go. Gotcha. So just whatever it gets in there. And then I will start to tear down the dryer shells, put the dryers in, pull a quick vacuum on them, get them all installed, and then I will start putting oil in. So depends on the oil system, how I do it. I had a nice electric pump till somebody broke it. So I've been doing it the the peasant by hand way here as of lately. You got that link I sent you, yeah? Uh, yeah, I got to find it. No, that's but fine. yeah, so I've been doing it by hand. So what I generally do, if it's a low pressure oil system, meaning it's got an oil reservoir, what I will generally do is hook up right to the bottom of that. I will push as much oil in there as I can till it's full to the top, basically. And then I'll valve off the OCV. And I'm sorry, no, I leave the OCV open on that. And I'm going CO2 in my head for a second. I will uh, leave the OCV open. I will hook up tank of refrigerant up to the top of it and i will open the vapor on the tank not the liquid the vapor and i will use that pressure from the vapor refrigerant to push that oil into the compressors because it's going to pressurize the tank it's going to vent through the ocv at the same time but it's going to push through the compressors before i do that i make sure all my oil pots are set if i have oil pots i will go through and set them via the chart so every oil pot, if it's mechanical, it has a chart on there. Like we, we covered in the last podcast, there is a setting via pressure. So if it's a 20-pound OCV and I want almost a half a glass, I, gotta, I know I got to be one turn down from top dead center on a swirling oil float. So I'll set them all the exact same, and then I'll start pushing the, the pressure in there. And I'll push till all the compressors are full, and then I'll stop. And then wherever my oil level is, say it's like below the one ball, I'll fill it back up to two and a half balls floating because I know I'm going to need more oil eventually. So I'll fill it back up to two and a half balls. And then I will 
start going through and bumping compressors. I should have enough pressure in there where I could bump a compressor on for a few minutes or a few seconds. Just go ahead and force it on the EMS and override the little pressure switch if I need to and just bump it and see if I can get it to run and make sure they're going to run. And then I'll go from there. I'll just start charging. Generally, how I do this is I will hook five, six tanks up at the same time. So I'll hook five, 600 pound tanks up to a charging manifold. And what you're going to want to do is shut the receiver outlet. And you're going to want to hook to the packed angle valve on the dryer shell. And you're going to want to charge from there. You're going to want to put in all the refrigerant you can till you stack that receiver up to 60, 70, 80%. Generally, I'm going about 70, 80%. And then once I hit that, I stop charging, let it all pump down, and then I'll slowly open the dryer shell and let all the refrigerant start going towards the store. Now, while I'm doing this, I'm closely monitoring my suction temperature. And while you're charging it, you're basically just going through and just charging it through the main liquid line, letting it feed through and clear everything out of that pipe that might be in there anyway, If it, and then it'll make its way back to the returns, yeah? Yeah, it'll make its way back to the suction. So you're doing two things here. Like you're charging relatively quickly without having to worry about it because you're not feeding liquid to the compressors and everything is so warm in the field. All that liquid you're sending out there is just instantly boiling off. It's just instantly boiling off so that way you don't have to worry about it. Now, then once you get to 80% or so, I, or about 65, 70%, I'll stop charging and let it all pump down. Let me get that last 10, 15% out of the store. And then I will get ready to open the main liquid. Now, I open the main liquid slowly. And the entire time I'm watching my suction temps, my discharge pressure, watching my return temps, and just letting this thing slowly build up and it should start staging up the compressors more and more. It's not as bad for, it's not CO2, so it's not as violent when it starts flooding back. It's more controlled. You could shut it off if you need to. You don't have to take as many precautions when you're doing this because it's, you could just shut it off and idle it. This is what it is. It's not going to blow reliefs. It's you have a lot more leeway with it. Now, as we're going through this, I'm just watching my discharge pressures, watching my temps, making sure that everything looks normal. And then I let it run and pull down and make sure my electronic EPRs are, are functioning. Make sure that if I have standard EPRs, that's when I start setting valves. After a couple of, like an hour, I'll start setting the mechanical EPRs one by one, going through and making sure the box temps are you're stable and making sure I'm not flooding back anywhere. So when do you typically start going through some of the, the more intricate stuff, right? Because it's not just all straight up either parallel loop system with an EPR and a liquid line zone, right? Some of these racks have the Viregard set up or... It does have a subcooler, which is one other extra thing that it's added on there. Like when you start going through the finals on those, is that typically after, before you're actually adjusting superheats? Because most of those oh, yeah. HFO racks are, are going to be mechanical expansion valves anyway. A lot of them anyway, not all of them. But so those things need to be working 100% before you start digging in and adjusting superheats. Otherwise, you're going to be doing it again. 
and again until until the rack is working right. Yeah, I generally spend the first day trying to get everything running and make sure we have no floodback issues, make sure we're not running little suction temps, and then I'm dialing in the subcoolers and I'm getting the whole back set and depending on how much help I have and how big of a store it is and how big the rack is. If it's a massive rack or it's it it takes me more time, but as I'm going through, I'm generally trying to get the subcooler running that day, but that's after everything is charged and I have the KCPRs somewhat stable. Like I have them somewhere around the SST and either they're going to be. And if I got to go like a quarter turn open, quarter turn closed here and there to make up for the glide, then I start there. And then if it's CDS valves, I really don't worry about it. I'd make sure they're moving and functioning. And then I'll start with the subcooler. I'll start dialing in the subcooler after I know I have enough liquid in the rack and that's all good. But do, do you check it? Do you check it via the EPRs to make sure they're opening and closing? I mean, me when I was out there, I would, I would shut off the EPR and just let the liquid line solenoid feed, just to make sure they all evenly rise up in temperature as fast as humanly possible. So if I see one where it's not raising, it's barely raising, like it's. It's still technically refrigerating as far as the case temperature sensors say. A lot of times you could say, okay, that valve's probably not programmed to the right step, so it's not closing all the way. How are you running that? About the same. I, I If I have time and I have somebody to help me and say it's like a 20-circuit rack, it doesn't take very much time to, okay, the rack's running. Let's. I'm going to shut this valve and make sure it's rising in pressure. I'll check the CDS valves because it's pretty easy to get them crisscrossed. So I'll make sure I'll have somebody else run through it. If it's at, at the header at the rack, which is marvelous, and it's so much better, everything should be circuit piped. I can't stand loop piping. It's so much easier to check and verify everything with it being right there at the rack. I could just force it shut and boom, check it, throw a gauge on there, then have another stubby gauge on another one and just check it real quick. It goes really quick. It, your validation checks are a lot easier when it's at the rack. So I, I'm a big proponent of having like Appian makes them and Yeltech makes them. They're like stubby gauges. I think they work great. They, they're Bluetooth gauges. I don't really use them for that, but they're basically a pressure transducer with a screen on it. That's what I use to set all my EPRs, all my pressure switches, all my Anything I'm setting a valve in front of me, I use those. I don't use the the wireless probes with the app. Oh, I got you. Like the Appian style ones, right? Yeah. The LTEX are like basically knockoffs. <laughs> they are. <laughs> it's literally the same gauge. To I know. <laughs> but it's probably made by that one company that was stealing everything in AHR. <laughs> <laughs> there's no samples yeah <laughs> why, why is there no samples i don't understand why can i not take this case controller it's considered a sample man i went back and forth to the copeland booth like probably 15 times i was like and i would just go over there and pick up the e3 jerry gently and just start walking, like making it very obvious <laughs> you laugh but that, that, i guarantee that company was actually doing it <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I will generally use those to check all my valves and set all my pressure switches. I really like them. They work really well and they, they update instantly. 
better than a few second lag you may get off of off of a probe. Uh, those work really well for that. So that's generally what I'm using to, to do my verifications and my pressure switch settings. And then as I'm going through all this stuff, I will generally set the, the low and high pressure switches with the nitrogen in the rack. So I will generally use nitrogen to set the low pressure switches. Same thing with the high pressure switches. I'll check them with nitrogen in there. I'll put them all up to say 450, 465, and I'll make sure all, all the compressors trip out on the high pressure. I'm not gonna go through and shut every single one with discharges when I'm doing a startup. When I could pressurize it with nitrogen, just isolate the compressors and the discharge line, put it up 375, boom, they all tripped. Okay, I know all the high pressure switches are good. When did they start getting temperature sensors with those pressure transducers? They've always had them. Oh, really? I've never used them though. Like, I've never I've, seen them on. I, I I have the Appian. Like, mine's a PT three hundred, which is doesn't have the, the pressure sense temperature sensor, mm-hmm. but my LTEC one did come with it. I just mm-hmm. never used it. It's mm-hmm. like a really chintzy pressure sensor but like appian redid those apparently and they look nice so th- those ones are discontinued and they have a new one oh. so with a flexible with a flexible connection on it looks really nice just uh waiting for this one to break some more so i can get a new one but yeah so that's generally how i'll go through and do all those i'll check all my transducers as it's running make sure it's all good and then I'll start dialing in everything. I'll start dialing in the subcooler, start dialing in the receiver flooding valve, the or the, or the condenser flooding valve. I'll start dialing in the receiver pressure. I'll start dialing in the liquid outlet pressure regulator if I have one. And like going through and just dialing the rack in. Not 100%, but getting it more and more done the first day. Then the second day after it runs for a little bit, I'll start tweaking everything okay it's i can shut the cpr a little more shut this valve a little more you know open the subcooler and get it the superheat set and once everything calms down then i go downstairs and start setting superheats so i'll go through get the saturation about where it needs to be if it's on a normal epr and then i'll set all the valves all at once i have the spoiling tools for that like the smart pro r sensors the best app and I cannot believe anybody has not designed any of these other tools, like how they copied it. Sporland did a fantastic job with that app. It just, it's functional for what we do. You could do the multiple superheats at once. It makes it go so much quicker. And I'll settle the superheats, get them dialed in four to six degrees, pretty much for everything. Medium temp and low temp. I'll set my superheats low. Yeah, those ones. They redid them, so they, they look way nicer. I'll generally set my super eats real low and then I'll go tune my EPRs into that. Cause as I'm setting super eats, the case is going to get colder and you're going to have to adjust the EPR more closed. I'll do my final after my super eats. I'll do my final EPR adjustment and then I'll write the pressure on the valve of what I set it at. Then if I'm doing CDS valves, what I'll generally do, is I do two different ways. If a customer has like a spec, so they want to see a CDS valve at 30%, I will generally set the superheat at 30%. I'll shut the valve at 30% and I will set the superheat then. 
because that's what they're looking at the valve want to run. Like I will generally for for that particular customer, I will set the superheat valve there. I, I want to see it right around saturation temp, but I try to get it to where they where they want it at that 30%, just for the fact that like I don't want to be dealing with it because I already know, okay, that valve's at 40%. Oh, go through and reset the superheats. I'm not messing with all that. Like, just well, because it's going to be based off of what the saturated needs to be for that case, and then essentially what the set point is. That 30 percent might not need mean crap because now you might have a walk-in a walk-in prep area, and that EPR might be because it might be only at five percent or ten percent because of the the high pressure. Yeah. So I I will generally try to set it where the saturation needs to be. I'll elevate it till. I'll throw a gauge on there and just mess around with it, say 40, 50%. Get it to where if it's got a digital compressor, variable speed, it's not seeing the suction spikes in the EPR in the suction. So it, you have a little bit of a buffer there. So it's you're not getting that digital unloading pulsing that it will throw off the case. Superheats, it's gonna throw off all the valves. You want to have a little bit of a buffer there, but you also want to get it as close to saturation as possible. So if you're setting a bunch of cases that are all the same, so if it's a bunch of plus 28 cases, I may raise the rack pressure plus 28 and set it that way. If all my cases are right around the same suction uh, and I have electronic EPRs, I'll just raise the case, there, the, the rack suction up. You're muted. You're muted. Yeah, I know I was getting there. Hey, you do a ton more startups now than... I do. What do you find that the days of them having one rogue case on a rack that's like super low um, is on the rack? Or are they actually now anything new that comes out? Typically on a medium temp rack, right? You always had that plus 18 for the meat box and everything else was this is now the high efficiency cases, 26 or 28 degrees saturated. Are they now start moving away from that where they either has its own condensing unit or they're actually on the putting on the low temp side? It, it depends. I've seen a lot of meat boxes get moved to the low temp side, okay. which I agree with because you're saving a ton of energy for you're sacrificing one one thing to uh, to waste a bunch of energy. And I've also seen a lot of meat box at points get moved up to plus thirty, plus thirty two, which I I. It blows my mind that they're running meat boxes at 28 because every single time the meat guys complain that they're freezing hamburger. When it, when it's plus 28 in the meat box, like every single time, like I generally set meat boxes to 33, 32 degrees because they're always complaining about it freezing hamburger, especially like lower quality hamburger meat. Like it, it freezes a lot faster. If it's got a lot of moisture in it, it freezes a lot faster at 28 degrees. It's getting ice crystals in it. Hmm. So that plus 18 meat box is really running a plus 22, plus 23. You could run the rack pressure up if that customer allows. But yeah, I've seen been seeing a lot of a lot of cases getting moved or meat boxes getting moved to low temp. And the, the, the other part of that is looking at a lot of these case temps. So like, Husband, for example, like a lot of these ID cases are multi-function cases. So they're a meat case, they're a deli case, they're a beverage case. So they may run a slightly different SST, mm -hmm. but not very much. It's not the meat case maybe running like a plus 24 
in a beverage case, maybe running a plus 18. I'm sorry, like a plus 28. They're using the same cases now for a lot of just about everything. Yeah, they just make a little bit of changes in the set points, whether it be the SST or sometimes even fan speed. Correct. Yeah, that's something you have to watch, especially now with these newer cases. They have so many, there's at least two or three different manufacturers that I know of that you can change fan speed of their the fans that they put in there. And it's all about checking the FPM. FPM on that case says it's supposed to be at 180. Make sure the damn thing's at 180 because it's going to save you a whole bunch of headache if you don't have have that and check that first. I can't stand because it, it they come out wrong all the time. It's an issue. Cases get moved around. Cases don't show up when they're supposed to or they get put in the wrong spot because, okay, this 12-footer showed up annihilated versus that they're going to put this one over here. That's where it becomes a problem because they all have the same model number. And it's, okay, this 12-footer will work over here. And then come to find out this one had the high-speed fan kit in it, and this one had a low-speed fan kit in it, and it becomes a problem. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. Also, since we're talking about piping and checking pressures and that, typically the rack set point is typically anywhere from 2 to 3 degrees lower than what your lowest SST on your case is. I cannot. So that's more of a old school rule of thumb and generally i don't know i don't probably with the way the pipe is sized now you know but typically if if you're looking at refrigeration schedules if if it's plus 15 plus 15 rack then probably the lowest sst is like plus 16 or plus 17 but most of the time it's two degrees now like is generally what i see these engineers doing but like a lot of the stuff is like the suction lines on 448 have been upsized so much for velocity. And it's, I'm generally seeing like half a degree. But I think the other point of that might be as well is because when you run those cases, a lot of times maybe they don't have EPRs on there, but they have case controllers on there where they're just controlling the expansion valve. So all of a sudden you shut that load completely off because it's made temperature, right? If it doesn't have EPRs and then I'm moving nearly as much refrigerant down, down the hallway. Yeah, obviously all these racks. So that's the other thing. All these racks are sized for 120 degree SCT. Full load. Full, full load. load. Worst case scenario that we don't even have the full load. We have 75% of the full load. So there's no reason to be running, a say, a plus 18 rack or plus 18 cases on a rack that, that is sized for plus 16 or running plus 16. There's just, it's it doesn't have the pressure drop to require it. You could run plus 18 and have a half a pound of pressure drop. Yeah. That, that's my thing. That, that's an instant way to save energy right there that I think these engineers are all missing because they're all looking at, engineers always look at the worst case scenario. I might as well be an engineer. <laughs> I, the other day, I so this someone texted me because I'm, I'm like, because I'm out on vacation, like I have, written there if there's any emergencies contact the development team and i didn't think about it because it's not people just don't call me for training stuff they call me for technical support the guy texts me he's like hey i got a question um you have me and the other guy down for the emergency contact if you're out of the office yeah i'm like what's this guy talking about where he's trying to size an epr and a low temp header for medium temp cases and he's trying to figure out and i was like ah all right I'll, i'll call yeah who needs to call for what (laughs) yeah that that's a big thing that like i 
I see that it is like changing at a lot of these racks now. Like there, there's the suction line sizing is dramatically changed in a lot of these 448, 449 stores where you don't have this pressure drop anymore like you did with 22 and stuff like that. So these engineers are getting a lot better at sizing these lines and keeping away from that pressure drop. So with that being said, I don't really see that pressure drop as much. So I try to run the SST up higher. I try to float everything. I float the SCT, float the SST. I want to see that suction floating. That's how I know I do a good startup. If I'm able to float that suction pressure and I'm able to float the connecting temperature and I have no problems with cases, that's when I know I did a good startup and everything's running good. When I'm able to get that floating suction up and I'm able to make it stable, that's what I like the most about this is tuning that rack and pushing every little thing I can out of it, making it run as efficient as I can and making it run with good stable case temps. Do you ever really get to do that as much as what you would regular one two on a rack like that you're doing the startup on? Devil's advocate here. I'm just asking. It depends what customer I'm customer I'm at. Like there are certain customers where I get way more leeway with it. Yeah, here's our spec, but go ahead and tweak it out and tune it out. And what can we get out of it? Let's try it. And then there's customers that are. This is how we do it at every single store. We're not changing it. We don't care if it saves energy. We don't care. It's just like over. This is the spec. This is how we want it. We're a brick wall. We don't. No, we're not, I, get I get it. I get it. Yeah. Um, it just, I find that frustrating. Like to me, like doing independence, I love it. I I would rather do independent work because like I have more say. Not just that, but and you and I probably this was this conversation you and I had probably ten years ago. But like at independence and like smaller companies, you you have the when doing energy management, when doing startup, you have a lot more leeway, like you said, to to basically because the customer is dependent on you. They don't have they don't have a third party energy management contractor that they're hiring, right? You have a lot more freedom to be like, hey, listen, if I spend a little bit more time doing this, I could probably save you a bunch of cash. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, yeah. Just do it. Just do it. Variable compressors, whatever you want to do. You know what I mean? So they give you a lot leeway. When I worked for a small company for two years, like I went through and we built up, became big, but I had every single store set up the way that I wanted to set up. And it was okay. I had everybody trained. This is how we're going to do this. This is how we do this. This is how we do this. And it, and it worked out nice. We were saving a ton of energy. Stores were running better. Contracts looked better. Because everything was set up and everything was running at peak efficiency that we could out of beat up old equipment. And then we were saving energy and they were spending money that they, they were paying the utility company that they were saving. They were taking that money and dumping it back into the stores. And why not? Because then the more they do that, then the more efficient it's going to go, right? So and we've heard this story time after time. Yeah, they just got contracted to put VFDs on the condensers, but the condensers have no fins left, so... Oh, yeah. I don't know how many times that guy brought up this summer. It's, why am I putting a drive on a condenser that's from 84? Like, why? We're not saving any energy. We're costing more in maintenance now. Like, we're just, but, it, it's but, it's, but it's cleaner voltage. But the money you spent on the drive, you could have used to buy a new condenser. I know, which would have saved, which would have recouped tons of money anyway. Yeah. So, I man, I, I got to... I'm curious about this. We've always been taught that the frequency on the incoming power is 60 hertz. Yep. And I measured it the other day with, I got a new oscilloscope and I was measuring it out of the wall. And I don't understand why it's a square wave unless I still don't know how to figure out my oscope. 
the utility company is going to vary it a little bit depending on, on, on how they're doing it. But a VFD is always going to clean up the power. Mm. You're running through like an output filter. It's going to clean up the power and make it more efficient. But like at the end of the day, the juice ain't worth the squeeze if the condenser is trash. True. So you want to do a two-part? Turn, turn the rest of this into a two-part? Sure. And what? We'll, and we'll record the rest next week? Yeah, that sounds good. I was just waiting for awkward times. All right, guys, we'll see you next time, and we'll talk to you later. Bye. You're such a dick. <laughs>